words of our Lord this morning astonished the disciples. Uh, and they were even alarmed by what he said. Most of them had left everything to follow him already. And they lived in a time in which people have far less than they do in a nation that was, until most recently, the most powerful economic force on the globe. So I'm aware this morning that as we come to this text, it's a very, it's a very hard text to hear. It's exceedingly difficult for us to hear the words of our Savior addressed to us. And I just want to pray that we will not avoid them, that we will walk toward them, that we will hear our Lord faithfully with obedient hearts. So let us pray. Father, your beloved Son, while possessing all things, became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. Grant that we, moved by your Spirit, might hold you as our greatest possession and lay down both life and treasure for your sake. Jesus, conform us as in all things to the gospel that you proclaim and to your blessed cross. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning I'll be preaching from Mark chapter 10. Uh, verses 17 to 31. And I want to go through this text in two uh, places. Verses 17 to 22, where Jesus reveals to this would-be disciple, this rich young man, that he lacks one thing that would make him able to inherit eternal life, namely fellowship with Jesus himself. And secondly, I want to go through the second section uh, where it runs from verse 23 to verse 31. And in that section, I think Jesus extends this story to all of us. And he reminds us that this calling to have fellowship with him in every way is not something that is just reserved to the rich young ruler, but it's given to all of us as a calling, as a summons to forsake all things so that we might inherit eternal life in the kingdom of Christ our Savior. So I want to conclude the sermon after going through both those sections with some applications for us today. How might we be obedient to the call of Christ uh, to forsake possessions and follow him? I just want to read uh, verses 17 to 22 first. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why do you call me good? This is the answer of Jesus to the question that the young man asks him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Our Lord and Savior always likes to ask questions in order to answer questions, and this is no exception. And Jesus is wanting to draw his attention, not so much to the question, should Jesus be called good, but why do you say that? Why are you calling me good? If you've read the opening part of The Lord of the Rings, it's a little bit like Gandalf's question to Bilbo. 
or sorry, the Hobbit. I got my quote wrong. <laughs> um, good morning, he says. And he says, why? What a lot of things you do use good morning for. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to this man. Why is it that you, in particular, are calling me good? What do you mean by it? Because Jesus tells him there's a way of speaking about goodness that refers to God alone. Do you mean it in that way? And then he begins to quote the commandments. You know the commandments. And he, he lists off the second table of the law. I think it's really interesting that Jesus avoids the first few commandments here. He goes right to the second table of the law. And he starts speaking about the way in which this rich young man relates to his neighbor. Do you do these things? And the man can respond to Jesus, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. It's a pretty remarkable statement from this rich young man. And I think um, many times we're tempted to dismiss him as uh, self-righteous, but he doesn't seem to be. He doesn't volunteer that information for Jesus. Jesus says to him, have you done this? And he says, yeah, I've done that. And he's not being disingenuous either, because when Jesus looks at him, it doesn't say that Jesus suspected that he was lying and said to him, oh, I really doubt that. <laughs> He says that it says that Jesus loved him, that Jesus recognized in this rich young man the truthfulness of what he was saying, that it was consistent with his own life. But something's missing. This rich young man who is who is seeking out Jesus, who, who is not uh, pulling himself up in his own self-righteousness, but is actually seeking out the Lord, recognizing that something is lacking, is really not good in the sense that he needs to be in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus has already hinted two times at what he's lacking, right? In the beginning, he says, why do you call me good? Are you calling me good in the sense that God is? Or do you mean something else by that? And then again, when he avoids quoting the first commandments, I think what he's suggesting there is, this is where you're lacking. This is where your keeping of the law has failed. Because you do not love the Lord your God before all other things. Because there are things in your life that keep you from experiencing me in all my goodness. And so he puts his finger on it and he says, this is it. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. There's your idol, brother. <laughs> and then come follow me. And the rich young man cannot follow Jesus because Jesus has rightly identified the thing that keeps him from doing so. He cannot call Jesus good in the same sense that God is because he has other goods that he's holding on to. God in Jesus Christ is not his highest good. And so he turns away from Jesus sorrowful. This rich young ruler, I think, is such a good picture of the difficulty of following Jesus in the American context, in the modern world. That I, I think if you, if you look at the history of how this text is interpreted, we're often tempted to kind of dodge what Jesus is saying here. We're tempted to say things like, what's really important is that you cultivate a spirit of detachment from your wealth. You don't actually have to give it away. But just make sure you're not too attached to it. And when we do this, I think what we're doing is we're siding 
with our wealth against the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That we're saying to him, this is an area over which you have no claim, Jesus. And we're moving in the direction of this rich young ruler away from Christ. I think it's so good for us to be reminded of people who have taken this quite seriously, quite literally, as a calling to follow Jesus. In the fourth century, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of growing wealth in the church. There was a lot of growing corruption in the church. And there was a strong movement in the church to try to embody the costly life of discipleship of Jesus. And the story I want to tell you is the story of someone who heard this text, preached one Sunday morning, and went out and immediately did what it said. Anthony, a young Egyptian, uh, born to two Christian parents, raised in the church, and his parents were killed, uh, probably in the great persecution, and he was entrusted with the care of his sister. And one day as he was walking to, to church, he started realizing and thinking about this text and how the apostles had all taken it quite literally and how they had sold all their possessions, gathered them together in one group, and used that for the blessing of the poor. Anthony arrives at the service, and as he's thinking about this text, the reading for the day was that text. And the preacher got up and, and expounded this text. And Anthony said, I realized that he was speaking to me. He goes out. He sells all that he has. He, he was a, a wealthy landowner, owned about 300 acres. Uh, gave the rest away to the poor and kept some for the livelihood of his sister so that she would be cared for throughout her life. And then he devoted himself to the costly discipleship of following Jesus. If anyone here can hear that this morning and can accept that as your call in obedience to this command, you will be richly blessed. We, we know countless people in the Solomon Islands who have heard the call in precisely that way. You've given up everything so that they can be poor and followed Jesus in a life of discipleship of this kind. And, and let me tell you, these people are not impoverished. They are so wealthy. They are so full of the Spirit of God. And I think for us to see that embodied in their lives is a sign of what Jesus is really doing here. It's really an invitation to the fullness of life to the fullness of the good things of God. If we can hear this not as, a, not as Jesus saying, I'm going to shut you out from the kingdom of God to this rich young ruler, but everything is open to you. You don't have to be worried anymore about the possessions that you own. You don't have to be worried anymore that the amount of money in that retirement account is going to accrue to such a level that will enable you to live comfortably for the rest of your life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. There's a real freedom there, isn't there? As Michael Card loves to say, we can't often imagine the freedom we'd find in the things we'd leave behind. So this, this calling comes in, and the temptation is always is to try to lighten the command a little bit, right? <laughs> to try to say something like, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. Now he's going to point us in the direction of what he really means when he starts talking about the gospel. But remember that Jesus says this, 
anyone who lightens these commandments or who lessens them in any way and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. No, Jesus goes right at the disciples because all of them are sitting there uncomfortable, (laughs) as we are. And he says to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus does this a lot. When he really wants to bring an issue to a head, he doesn't accept their silence, but he takes them on. (laughs) And the disciples are still worried. Oh my goodness, no. Does he really want to talk about this? And verse 24 says, they were amazed at his words in the ESV. Or in the Greek, it's even stronger. They were startled by his words, might be a bit closer. But even they were alarmed by his words. Troubled to the point of despair, maybe. Because all of them realize that at some level, Jesus isn't just talking about this rich young ruler. He's talking about all of them. And he says to them, children, now he's directing directing it to them, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Notice he doesn't even talk about rich people there. (laughs) He just says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Try to forget if you've ever heard it, the interpretation that talks about the the gate called the eye of a needle in Jerusalem. (laughs) That's a really late interpretation. Um, No one up until the 19th century believed that. And there's been absolutely no evidence found for such a gate in Jerusalem. What Jesus is really saying is a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. (laughs) Anyone who's ever sewed knows what this means, right? For me, a string can't even go through the eye of a needle. (laughs) How much less a camel? And, And the next verse really spells that out clearly. He doesn't say it might be possible. If the camel were to divest itself of all, its, of all the things that it's carrying to slide through there, he says, it's impossible. It can't be done. Again, driving the disciples to this place of, of trouble and alarm and even despair. And they get it this time. And Peter says, oh my goodness, then who can be saved? That's the place that this command needs to drive us all to. Who can be saved, Jesus? Who can leave behind all of the good things that they have in this world for the greatest good of all? And Jesus is saying, you can't. Not now. Not until I give you the gift of my spirit. You can't follow me to the place where I am going. You can't go to the cross. You can't deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me yet. But one day you will drink the cup that I am drinking now. He's driving the disciples to a place of despair in their own abilities to follow him. And he's pointing them to a completely different kind of reality that they have not yet experienced. He says, with man, this is impossible but not with God. God can perform the miracle of the camel moving through the needle's eye. So Peter starts responding 
See, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. And I love this question. It's actually a question. He's really asking the question, are we disciples? (laughs) Are we real disciples, Jesus? We want to follow you so badly, and we've done everything we can to follow you. Do, Do you recognize us as real disciples? And I think that's our question too. Lord, you see everything. You see all of the motives that I bring to discipleship. You, you see the fact that sometimes I don't really want you. I want the good things that you can give me. But in spite of all that, do you recognize us as real disciples? We've left everything and we've followed you. And Jesus says to him a, a strong yes here. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters, mothers, children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, you've left these things to follow me. And so I recognize you as my disciples. I recognize you as heirs of the kingdom of God. And this is only possible in you because of my presence with you. Jesus is not saying to them here, yeah, you've done all these great things. And so you're worthy to enter the kingdom of God. He says, the reason why you're able to do this is because you're following me. Because you're in fellowship with me. Because you recognize me as the good above all other things. And you've abandoned those good things to follow me. I have enabled you to lay them aside and to take up your cross with me. These ones are the ones who see the parable of the kingdom of heaven like the pearl hidden in the field. And when they perceive how valuable it is, they sell everything and they go and they buy that pearl, that piece of land that has the pearl on it so that they can possess it. Here we see Jesus opening up to them the light of the gospel. And he's saying to them, Not, don't worry about that stuff, about giving up all your things. (laughs) But when you do that in fellowship with me, I make it possible. Look, you gave up one family. But now, look how many brothers and sisters you have. I was reminded of this uh, when when I was in the Solomon Islands. And I was uh, going out on a mission to Few Cathedral. And we were welcomed into someone's home, and I'd never met them before. And this man came up to me, and he said, See, Jesus was right. (laughs) You left your family back in the U.S., but you have a much bigger family now. And you even have a lot of houses, too. (laughs) And every place, in fact, where your foot goes, God's giving that to you. The whole world is your parish. (laughs) And the whole family of God, the whole people of God are your brothers and sisters. Do you see the joy that Jesus is opening up to us? You left behind a family. 
And I've given you now my family. You left behind all the cares and anxieties of your bank account. And now I'm showing you that all that I possess belongs to you. There's so much joy and there's so much freedom, brothers and sisters, in giving it up to follow Christ. And Jesus is inviting the disciples to see it, to see the blessing that they've been given in Him, in fellowship with Him, and to love that more than they love the things that they left behind. Jesus even invites us further into His life to share in His suffering. He says, I'll give you all these things and I'll also give you persecutions. And again, I think we're tempted to say, oh, here's the downer part, <laughs> right? But the, the, the apostles, the disciples, none of them knew any greater joy than to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. That comes up again and again in the New Testament. They're whipped and beaten in the Sanhedrin. They go out and what do they do? They rejoice that they were worthy of suffering for the sake of the name. James, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because in those trials, you're being formed into the likeness of my son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Father tells us. So, the gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us not that we are exempt from this command to leave all things to follow him, but that in fellowship with Jesus, this becomes possible for us to take up the cross in this way and to follow him. Please, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear that. That there, is none of, there are none of us here who are exempt from this command. That all of us must stand in obedience under it in one way or another. That the poor, that Jesus that our brothers and sisters all have a rightful claim on our possessions. And that there is nothing that you and I possess in this world that is truly ours in any inalienable sense. It belongs to Christ. So, what does obedience to this look like for most of us? I already gave us an example of St. Anthony doing literally what was said here. And I hope it means that to some of us. But I want to give you a picture of what two other saints did in response and obedience to this as a way of encouraging us, uh, people who have wealth, how to obey the costly summons of Jesus. Because remember, after all, Abraham is in the kingdom of God and he was a man with great wealth. And I think maybe that was part of the reason the disciples were astonished is they could think of all these people in the Old Testament who were indeed wealthy. I want to go to a, maybe a less known example, um, the example of St. Valentine. St. Valentine was a bishop and one who, who served his diocese very faithfully. And he was also one who, who had quite a large house. He was quite wealthy. And he was very generous with the things that he gave. And at St. Valentine's death, um, the people in his parish got together and they decided to go into his house to, take his, to gather up his belongings, to figure out what to do with them. And when they walked into his house and opened the door, this great expanse where he lived was completely empty. And they went, oh my goodness. <laughs> this man sold all his furniture 
and sold all of his things for the sake of the kingdom of God. He was using this wealth, which he had, and he was, and he was doing what St. Anthony did only over about 70 years. <laughs> it took him until his death to let go of the last possession. If someone looked at your life, do they see that as the trajectory of how you use your wealth? Do they say, man, this person must be investing in something completely different because by all of the standards, they are failing <laughs> in the American dream. If that's, if that's not the story of our lives, then there's something wrong. Then we are in some way being kept from pursuing Jesus Christ. Mammon has too great a claim on us. A final example. This one comes from, uh, from India. And it's the story about St. Thomas. Uh, when St. Thomas went to India and he arrives in India, um, he's given favor with one of the rulers there. And the ruler wants him to build this big church. And so he keeps giving Thomas money. And Thomas lives kind of far away from him. So he doesn't actually oversee what's going on with all this money. Well, Thomas, instead of building a big building, it starts gathering the poor and giving the money away. <laughs> and people in the province start hearing, this, this guy is a wastrel. <laughs> he's, he's getting rid of all the, the king's money. And they went up to the king and they said, hey, you need to keep an eye on what St. Thomas is doing or Thomas is doing because he's wasting all your money. And the king went to St. Thomas and he said, you need to give an account of what you did with the money that I gave you. And he said, okay, come. I'll give you an account of it. And he gathered all the poor together. And as they walked toward the, toward the place where they were all gathered, he said, you're going to see the wealth of the kingdom of heaven when we enter into that building. And they walked into the building, and it was just not very, not very impressive building. <laughs> I love that this is similar. <laughs> but he pointed out, this, this is the wealth of the kingdom of heaven. And the king was so overcome that he didn't execute St. Thomas. <laughs> and then he kept, he kept giving him the money to build the kingdom of God. I see this in so, many, in so many living saints. Saints who the trajectory of their life is a trajectory that goes downward in a culture that's obsessed with climbing the ladder. Saints who repeatedly give up what they have, who use what they have, who welcome others into their homes, who spend themselves, who pour themselves out like a drink offering for the sake of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, there's no other life as joyous as that life. And that's the life that Jesus summons us to this morning when he says to us, come and follow me and leave all of your possessions behind. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.